So hi everyone, welcome to the Third Culture Kid Virtual Online Forum, where all conversation of TCK and faith comes together. This is a place for people to share their own stories and learn from others. It's a place people could safely explore the effects, benefits, and purpose with cross-cultural upbringing. We also want to challenge TCKs and just CCKs in general to think deeper on how their cross-cultural component of their lives is tied to their faith. This podcast is brought to you by Crew, a caring community passionate about connecting people to Jesus Christ. And hi everyone, uh, my name is Anna.、Uh, I grew up living in East Asia and Australia. We have special guests, Pat and Tammy McLeod. Pat and Tammy serve as Harvard chaplains for Crew. Tammy is also director of college ministry at Park Street Church in Boston. She received her MA in spiritual formation from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Pat holds an MA in theological studies from the International School of Theology, and an MA in science and religion, and a PhD in practical theology from Boston University. Now I say that was a mouthful. <laughs> they almost sounds like they're collecting <laughs> degrees, which is awesome. <laughs> Uh, Pat and Tammy have been married for more than three decades and are parents to four grown children. So today, Pat and Tammy will be taking us into their story of ambiguous loss that started with their son Zach's accident. Can you tell me what happened? Sure. The story that. We tell in our book, Hit Hard, is begins with Tammy and me at、uh, the first meeting of the year for our campus ministry in Boston. You can imagine an auditorium just filled with scores and scores, even maybe a couple hundred. Very excited, enthusiastic, happy college students who are seeing each other for the first time after、uh, the summer.、Uh, when all of a sudden, a, a student behind me, a Harvard student, came up to me and、uh, was sort of. Really interrupted the conversation I was in and said, "Your son is trying to get a hold of you." And she handed me her phone.、Uh, when I answered the phone, it was our second son, our third child, Nate, who was at that time thirteen, right? And he was at home alone. Our youngest son was with us. Our daughter had just gone off to college, and then our older son Zach was supposedly playing football at a, in a scrimmage just outside of town. Anyway, when I got on the phone, Nate just unloaded on me. He was like, "Dad, why aren't you answering your phone?" There's、uh, coaches that have been calling,、uh, parents are calling. Now the hospital is calling. He's been hurt, and apparently he's being airlifted to the hospital. Dad, they they said they're going to have to do an emergency brain surgery, and they need to talk to you right away. And with that, I grabbed Tammy and Soren, and within you know a couple minutes, we were. Racing down Massachusetts Avenue to get to a hospital that we'd never been to before, and when we walked in, we were met by someone who ushered us right into the pre-op room where Zach was laying unconscious and intubated, still in his football uniform. The doctor busts through the doors. He hands us the clipboard and explains to us that they're going to have to perform a surgery that could result in him dying, or he could have a full recovery or anything in between. And Handed me the clipboard. Said, "Sign here." I did, and with that, we we said goodbye to Zach. We kissed him. We prayed for him, and they wheeled him away. 
you know, to make a long story short, Zach survived that injury, but a portion of his brain did not. That was really our introduction into this world of, of ambiguous loss. Thank you for sharing. I can't imagine how you do it to encourage others by sharing something that is so, for me, it's harder to share about things when I feel like I'm reliving it when I share. So I appreciate mm-hmm. you telling the story. So when you talk about ambiguous loss, I think I've learned a little bit that there's different types. What are the different types of ambiguous loss and why do you think that it's important for people to know? First, there is physical absence with psychological presence and examples of that would be people missing due to war or terrorism or natural disasters, kidnapping, incarceration, divorce, adoption, immigration, or third culture kids. (laughs) And then Psychological absence with physical presence, that's what we're dealing with. Alzheimer's disease, other dementias, traumatic brain injury, chronic mental illness, and addictions like drugs, alcohol, or gambling. I think one of the biggest things I learned by studying about ambiguous loss is that experts call it the most stressful type of loss. And that's because there's no linear process of letting go. Rarely is there acceptance and there's never closure. When I read the part about never closure, I finally felt understood. Secondly, it reminds people of something they can't fix or cure. And in many countries of the world, we think we can fix and solve and cure everything, but we actually can't. So we need to temper our desire to have mastery over all things. And then third, It's actually hard to find meaning and make sense of something that defies logic and resolution. Like this makes no sense. Our son goes to a football game and we never see him as he was again. Fourth thing, the loss is rarely validated. So there are no public ceremonies of grief unless someone dies. People can tend to think I shouldn't grieve if I didn't lose someone to death. And so even now in the midst of COVID, for example, there are some of us who lost people to death. Like one person in our grief group at Harvard lost five grandparents to COVID. But other people then think that they shouldn't grieve their loss because it isn't as severe. And we just need to not compare loss, (laughs) that loss is loss. And we just need to grieve our loss and validate ambiguous loss as deep loss. And then the last thing is that people get stuck and frozen in unresolved grief. And that leads to depression and relational conflict. And that starts to erode relationships. And because we don't know how to deal with ambiguous loss, then there's a lot of torque on our relationships. What I've noticed, like since learning about the term third culture kid, is that I hear a lot about a term called hidden loss, which is kind of more that you have a good experience nestled with hard experiences, such as when I leave grandma from my passport or home country, and then moving overseas with my parents. I'm still heard about like leaving, but at the same time, like I could be really excited, like, hooray, I'll be reunited with my friends again. 
Well, I feel like for ambiguous loss, it's the first time I heard about it was actually when I sat in one of your seminars. It was different. And I've just felt like, yeah, like, I feel like, you know, yeah, there is head and loss, but there's something more with that. And the part where you kind of shared that is stressful and that there's no closure. I think it's very relevant. In the CCK world, a lot of times you hear about the type one loss where when you physically move, but people have lose loved ones through different illnesses. Like my mom, she's a two-time cancer survivor. I was hit hard like through that. And I have friends who their parents have divorces and it's really hard for the kids as well. You mentioned that it's challenging for relationships. So what are like some of the things that you've done you think have been helpful to be gentle with each other in the midst of ambiguous loss? And what are kind of some of the things that you walked through before realizing that like, oh, this is something I need to work on? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me begin by saying this. We've learned that the key to living well with the ambiguity that comes with the kinds of losses we're talking about here is learning to live well with both having and not having at the same time. Typically, I mean, that in itself is very difficult for an individual to do because you will usually do one or the other. When two people are dealing with the same loss and one person is doing one and the other is doing the other. In other words, one is living, you know, in complete denial of the fact that there's even been a loss and just obsessing over what they still have. In, in our case, me obsessing over the son I still have, but living in denial about the fact that he's been forever changed and there's parts of him that we've lost. And then the other, Tammy being the person who really does acknowledge that there's been a loss. It's like the Zach that we once knew and loved died, but also having a much more difficult time revising her attachment to the son that she still has. So that twerks the relationship, right? And that's really, in, in a lot of ways, the storyline, one of the main themes that runs through our own book and our own journey. We learned that we had two very different responses to our loss, you know, and, and that's when we were told, actually, we, we began to see a grief counselor about four months, I think, into the, the loss when it was beginning to become clear that Zach was not going to have a full recovery. And he said to us, be gentle with each other. You're both experiencing a lot of pain right now. And those words really have stayed with us in little ways, like at night, Tammy might do something that will irk me and I will want to snap at her and be snarky or be raise my voice. And those words are echoing in my brain, uh, like, don't be gentle with her, you know. And when I'm at my best and relying on God for help, I can do that. You know, I can listen and not become defensive and say, what's going on? Tell me more. Summarize and validate whatever's behind whatever it is that she says. And so that's what I mean by being gentle. Another thing, we made a rule that we would just not talk about Zach or or even heavily loaded issues after nine o'clock at night, because it's just not worth it. You know? And we also <laughs> actually even made an agreement that we wouldn't try to resolve conflicts 
by herself, we would talk about them in the presence of this counselor. And that actually was a really smart thing to do until, you know, one day when we showed up at the counseling office and he was not there and we decided, well, let's just do what we normally do. We'll go on a date because we would usually go see a counselor and then go on a date. Mm-hmm. And during that time, you know, we would process the conversation we just had. And so he wasn't there. So we went on our date and we decided, well, let's just talk about what we would have talked about there. And we found that, oh gosh, we cannot do this without a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> and we realized, you know what, I think we might be done. And that was pretty much, that was probably the second to last time yeah. that we met with a counselor. Would you add anything? I'm like, Pat, I try to be gentle, but sometimes I'm not. So there's also the apology side. If I am snarky or mean, I'll just go to my room alone and pray and then go back and apologize to Pat and ask his forgiveness. We've had to do a lot of asking forgiveness for when we failed. Hmm. For my family, it was kind of harder, like because when my mom, when she had uh, cancer the second time, I was studying in the States and they weren't. But before when that happened, we walked through a period of processing of what happened, how could this happen? You know, a lot of pointing fingers. And one day I just felt like, you know, I may have received Christ my freshman year. But that was one point where I know what is love in the Bible and am I really doing that to love the people I love well? So I have another question. How have you and your kids tried to adjust to the change in your life after Zach's accident? For me, I can't do many of the things that I did with Zach before. I should give you a little snapshot of what he's like today. Um, He has very little short-term memory, very little speech, right side weaknesses of all kind and a right visual block. So he has severe disabilities. He has to have a one-on-one aid with him at all times. They have to hold onto a gate belt for every one of his steps. And they sit by his bed at night, all through the night and walk him to the bathroom. Things had to change for me. Instead of Zach and I reading the scripture and discussing it, what we're learning, now I just say, when Zach comes home on Sundays, Zach, do you want to read the Bible? And he always is so excited. God left him very happy and joyful. He lives in the moment. So I just read the scripture out loud and he listens. And then when we pray, Instead of us going back and forth praying like we used to, we used to get on our knees before bed every night and just pray back and forth. Now, usually I just pray and he agrees along like, "Mm, mm." at the end, he'll say maybe two sentences. They're hard to understand, but I can usually make them out. And then we used to play worship songs together. We'd have our guitars and both be singing, but now his right hand doesn't work. So his left hand, we use one guitar and he plays the chords of the left hand. So he has all his long-term memory, um, anything that he learned before his injury. He remembers all his chords. He'll do the chords and I'll strum with the right hand. I'm reaching over the guitar, strumming 
and I'll sing. And then once in a while, he'll throw a phrase in there when he gets really excited. <laughs> um, so I've just had to adjust how I do things with Zach. Can I add a little bit to that, Anna? Yeah. One of the keys to growing our resilience in the midst of ambiguous loss is to revise our attachment to the person or persons that are lost. You'd mentioned also not just how we've dealt with this, but how have our kids done that? So we have a son who's now a junior in college, and he and Zach had an incredibly close bond. I mean, Zach was his hero. He loved his older brother, and his older brother just loved him and doted over him. And, you know, he he was Soren's coach. He was Soren's cheerleader. He was Soren's exemplar of everything he wanted to be, you know. And so it was a huge loss for Soren. He was also Soren's spiritual mentor. About six years into or seven years into the injury, Soren, junior in high school, and he could drive a car. And so we had Soren take Zach to his physical therapy appointments. And, and Soren, loved watching the physical therapist work. And so we actually paid Soren to be Zach's therapist, who he would do the therapy with that he had learned from watching the PT work for Zach. This re-established his relationship with Zach. Like it was a reversal of roles. He became the coach. He became the physical mentor to his older brother. Even though he acknowledges that Zach's role as the spiritual mentor continued and continues to this day to shape Soren's life. So all I'm pointing out is that that, and by the way, he wrote his college admission statement or whatever Same. essay on that, and, and it got him into Harvard. It was Congratulations. A <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think more importantly, it just shows you this, the importance of acknowledging, this is what I like about your question, is that part of what gets people stuck in their loss is that they're not acknowledging that there has been a real change. And with that change, it's going to require some adjustment on our part on revising and our goals and our roles in these relationships that we once had. In these situations, sometimes you feel like, okay, I need to be resilient. I need to accept reality, but then how? In the Bible, there's the law, but then <laughs> just knowing the law doesn't exactly brings you there. <laughs> kind of going off of that, what are like some of the spiritual practices that you felt that helped you in the process of all of this? The first one for me is the slow meditative reading of the Psalms, the prayer book of the Hebrew people. Just hearing the psalmist be honest with God and real and pouring out their hearts to him, weeping before him, helped me to do that myself. I actually stayed in the Psalms, reading one a day for four years. <laughs> Psalm 34 stood out the most to me. The verse, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Just, I actually experienced the nearness of God and suffering through the Psalms. I think for Americans, we don't do a very good job with grief, like grieving, especially an ambiguous loss. We have to realize the loss is valid and then we need to grieve it. Mm -hmm. So the Psalmists helped me grieve. And then secondly, silence. It was just so healing for me to sit in complete silence sometimes. Like on Friday nights when Pat would go to a meeting, I would just sit there for two hours in silence. 
And I know it sounds crazy, but I felt like God was just healing me in that time of sitting with him. I wasn't saying anything. Then solitude, I would go on retreats periodically, retreat centers, or I would just go out into nature. Sometimes I even did them at home, but I would just be alone with God for an extended time. The next one that was super helpful was the one that I actually still do at the end of every day. It's called examine prayer. So it's just a type of prayer. And you reflect back on your day and you ask, you pray first with God and say, help me look back through my day. So it's actually a prayer with him looking back over your day. It takes me about five minutes and I just ask, what was life-giving today? And what was life-thwarting? Another way to ask it would be, when did I best connect with God, self, and others? And when did I not? But so for five minutes every night, I just sit there and reflect. And what happens is it shows how God is breaking in and what he's doing in my life. So it's very, very encouraging. And then spiritual reading helped. Jerry Sitzer's A Grace Disguised and Walter Storff's Lament for a Son gave me language. Sometimes I couldn't. Even though I wanted to tell Pat how I was doing, I actually couldn't because I didn't have the words. Sometimes reading other people's writing can give you the words. That was super helpful. Last, just learning about rituals or ceremonies. And I really wanted Pat to take time to talk about that because he did a lot of work on a ceremony for our ambiguous loss. Now, Tammy's mentioned some really really helpful and important personal and private and individual practices that put our soul in a place where we can heal and grieve and you know, mourn losses and, and so forth. Uh, but one of the things I, I just want to add that one of the things that's really hard about dealing with an ambiguous loss is that, as Tammy mentioned earlier, it's never validated at least it's rarely validated or publicly acknowledged. And with real losses of death, we, we have a communal, public, relational way of grieving. And that's really helpful for our soul. We need that. It's called a funeral, right? And it allows us to experience the comfort and the consolation that comes from a whole community of people acknowledging a clear and obvious loss. Well, when, when the loss is ambiguous, like with their cultural kids, the stuff that you, you lose. There's so many losses. It's enormous as I've read some of the articles about this. And yet those go unvalidated communally and relationally and publicly. Tammy had been sort of pushing for this for a while, this idea of let's, we need to have kind of like a funeral for the Zach that we lost. A, a something that we do with more than what I do on my own when she goes alone and grieves which she had done that annually on the, on the anniversary of Zach's injury. She had basically done this by herself. And she kept saying, I think we should do something with the whole family and maybe some of Zach's closest friends. And finally, she convinced me, actually, after she had discovered the idea of ambiguous loss that says everything that I'm saying to you right now, that, that this is what is lacking in a huge loss that people experience and that really gets them frozen and, and depressed and twerks their relationships. And so I caved in and I'm like, okay, let's, this was the year where his 
birthday, which was two days before the anniversary of his injury. In between those two days was a Saturday, a weekend, right at the beginning of the fall semester. And I thought, well, why don't we just do something on that day? And we'll do both. We'll actually have this sort of funeral ceremony of remembering Zach as he was communally and with friends. And then we will go to some place where Zach is and we'll have this big celebration of his birthday and we'll validate the son that we still have. And so we did both in, in one day. And um, that was huge for all of us, way more for me than I expected it to be. And others said the same thing. They came up to Tammy afterwards. People who were like, what? Why are we doing this? I mean, Zach's still alive. We love it. This sounds like a funeral. This is so weird, you know, but then they came up afterwards and said, wow, I needed this more than I thought. I am counted among those who would say that because having that place where we were all together acknowledging a clear and obvious loss that up until then had been so ambiguous, it pulled emotions out that were just inside of me that had to come out. And it was almost like those tears were like poison. I felt like they were just, had been inside of me all along and actually doing what we did. It was really emotionally helpful for everyone, our kids, the community around Zach. I've always kind of, when I grieve, I do it alone, but I've never mm-hmm. done it with family or with, you know, no matter if it's like the friends, the relationships that I've lost. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really helpful. I think that's a big takeaway for me. Like you mentioned about the book, your book hit hard. I read it and I, there was just so many takeaways from it that I think it was very personal that you really helped the reader walk alongside with you in your story and I like that there's a part where you know Pat you wrote it and then there's a part that Tammy wrote it two sides of the picture Mm. um, and how it it kind of just all comes together Mm. so I would highly recommend it to people Um, there's a link in our podcast description that will take you to Pat and Tammy's website where people can purchase the book on four different platforms. And also like I went on there and I think there's a lot of helpful like articles as well. You know, I think that great resources for people to process. So thank thank you so much for being with us today. Our pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Uh, TCK VOF is now on 10 podcast platforms. If you want to stay connected to us and ask a question or have a topic idea you would like us to discuss in the future, you can click on the message button on Anchor to leave us a voice message. Thank you again for listening to the TCK VOF, where our conversation of TCK and faith comes together. Hope you have a good rest of your week. Bye. Thank you.